welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazadi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, you hear a conversation I had as a guest on another podcast. The podcast is called Press the Button, and it's produced by Plowshares Fund. I sat down with Tom Colina, Director of Policy at Plowshares, and we talked about the future of the Iran nuclear deal and the current state of negotiations and the stalemate that's been created in Vienna. Plowshares Fund is an organization dedicating to prevent the spread and use of nuclear weapons. Here's that episode on Press the Button. If they can meet somewhere halfway instead of an either-or situation, if Iran can make a little bit of concessions, the U.S. can make a little bit of concession, maybe put off some things for a near future, but get to an initial agreement, I think, yes, I have some hope. But both sides need to make concessions. That's the voice of Nagar Mordazavi, an Iranian-American journalist and host of the Iran podcast. She's today's guest on Press the Button, a Plasters Fund podcast dedicated to nuclear policy and national security. And now here are your co-hosts, Tom Kalina and Lauren Billet. Thanks, Angela, and welcome back to Press the Button. Hi, Tom. How was your weekend? Lauren, hi. Great to see you. Uh, my weekend was great. Had a wonderful Father's Day, pancake breakfast and games with the kids. So lots of fun. And I want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads and father figures out there. How was yours? That sounds like so much fun. And yes, happy Father's Day to you, Tom, and to my wonderful father and my great stepfather. And quick note to everyone who these kind of holidays are difficult for, just know that you're in our thoughts and we wish you all the best. I would also like to take a moment to acknowledge Juneteenth, another holiday that occurred over the weekend, which commemorates the day that enslaved people were freed in Texas years after the Emancipation Proclamation had taken effect. The day was not recognized as a federal holiday until 2021, but it's a very important day in history and has been celebrated since 1865, so happy Juneteenth! And finally, quick shout out to one of my very best friends, Erisa, and her fiance, who got engaged over the weekend. I couldn't be happier for you both. I love you too, and congratulations. So, Tom, what do you have for us on nuclear news this week? Will do, and congratulations to your friends too. Very exciting. Nuclear news. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, known as ICANN, held a forum in Vienna over the weekend. Uh, ahead of the first meeting of states that are members of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, otherwise known as the Ban Treaty. ICANN brought together organizers, educators, and nuclear weapons experts from around the world, including our very own Emma Belcher, who spoke about how we can seize this moment and sustain momentum on the nuclear issue going forward. The Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons also took place on Monday, organized by the Austrian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. This one-day event aimed to focus international attention on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons, and we'll be following the Ban Treaty's first meeting of states' parties closely and bring you more analysis next week. And this week for early warning, I sat down with Hans Christensen. He is an associate senior fellow at Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, known as CIPRI, and the director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. We discussed his chapter on the world's nuclear arsenal, which he co-wrote with colleague Matt Corda, who has also been a guest on our show in the past, for the CIPRI 2022 yearbook. This was a timely interview since last week marked the 40th anniversary of the Nuclear Freeze Rally, 
which took place on June 12, 1982. Randall Forsberg, who started her nuclear policy career at SIPRI, led the campaign for the nuclear weapons freeze and served as a catalyst for the movement. The spirit of this freeze rally was also present in this month's Chain Reaction Gala, so if you'd like to see that, head over to plowshares.org slash watchchainreaction2022. And then I talk with Nagar Mordazavi. She's an Iranian-American journalist and the host of the Iran podcast. We discussed the stalled negotiations to revive the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Both Washington and Tehran have been unable to make progress. And Rafael Grossi, the head of the UN's atomic watchdog, has said that Iran's recent moves to limit transparency means his agency may soon not be able to confirm Iran's nuclear program is peaceful. So time could be running out to save the deal. Please stay tuned. And if you like what you hear, remember to hit subscribe and leave us a rating. Your feedback helps us to improve the show. And with that, let's get into today's episode. The clock is ticking. And now, early warning, early warning, early warning, early warning, a seven minute synopsis of this week's nuclear news. Thanks, Jacqueline. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, known as SIPRI, has just released its 2022 yearbook. While the name sounds pleasantly nostalgic for our school days, the contents of this yearbook focus not on extracurriculars and clubs, but on the current state of armaments, disarmaments, and international security. Today, we're joined by Hans Christensen, Associate Senior Fellow with SIPRI's Weapons of Mass Destruction Program and Director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. Christensen and his colleague Matt Corda, also of SIPRI and the Federation of American Scientists, co-authored the chapter on the world's nuclear arsenals for the yearbook. Hans, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks very much for having me. To begin, could you share the overall focus and findings from your and Corda's research for the yearbook? Yeah, this year, the main conclusion is uh, that after 30 years of significant reduction in global nuclear arsenals. The clear trend is that we're now beginning to see an uptick uh, in the world's arsenals again, and we expect that trend to continue for the next decade. And so this is a significant shift from everything that we have been dealing with in the world for the past 30 years, and it reflects that the nuclear armed states are beginning to adhere or attribute more value to nuclear weapons again, not just in terms of what they have, but also they got to be able to do more. They're going to have more of them. Uh, so this is a worrisome trend for the international uh, non-proliferation and disarmament community. And how has diplomacy affected or not affected these trends? Well, the diplomacy works only as, as well as the political will does, of course. And so if there is a political will to reduce arsenals and limit the role, then that is what is being accomplished because there are very skilled people uh, in you know, all the institutions that can do this job and get it done if, if the political will is there. But if the, 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 if the will upstairs in the top of the government is missing, then we're lost uh, in a sense. And the best we can do until that situation changes is that people um, that are working on preparing arms control and new agreements, they're preparing the ground for when the political climate changes again, so that once it changes, we're ready and can hit the ground running. We don't have to start all over. And what does this mean for the future of nuclear policy on the global scale and here in the United States? 
On the global scale, it means, it means that there is a lot more competition, direct competition. It reflects a greater degree of military um, animosity between countries today. Um, nuclear weapons are not sort of on their own. They reflect how people view threats and, and opportunities. And so that's what we see happening here. This is the result of what is now being called great power competition. But it's also the result of smaller power competitions between India and Pakistan, you know, what, what North Korea is doing, uh, things like that. Even the United Kingdom, a small nuclear weapon state, has decided it needs to increase its nuclear stockpile. So there are many different reasons for this happening in different countries. Here in the United States, it means that the United States will begin to shift its focus from uh, re reducing uh, the role and numbers of nuclear weapons to holding the line, so to speak. Um, there's no appetite yet for an increase or for a significant increase um, like we see in China or India, Pakistan, or probably in Russia. Um, but it does mean that in the United States, we're seeing signs that um, officials and politicians are beginning to talk more about a valuable role of nuclear weapons and a need even to have more of them that can do new missions or special missions and things like that. So we have to be really careful that we do not sort of get swept away by this international crisis and begin to walk back American nuclear uh, arms control and disarmament policy for the last 30 years. Finally, Hans, how do you think we can walk that back and reduce our nuclear weapons arsenal? Well, one way we've been trying to do it uh, for the past 30 years is to, in our military strategies, rely more on conventional weapons. Uh, for scenarios that do not strictly require nuclear weapons. I mean, sort of purely holding things at risk in certain scenarios. This has actually led to a significant reduction of uh, U.S. inventory of non-strategic nuclear weapons over the years. Um, but it's not something we can continue to do. Uh, it doesn't solve the problem, so to speak. Um, it has to be accompanied by a political determination that we reduce the requirement to what it is the military has to hold at risk with nuclear weapons and the jobs they have to accomplish with nuclear weapons. That can be done, but that's a White House decision. It is the president that has to say to the military, no, you do not have to accomplish this mission anymore. We are good enough uh, to accomplish this and this and this, and that will result in new opportunities for reducing reliance on nuclear weapons. Powerful message, Hans. Unfortunately, though, our time is up. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here and sharing your expertise. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Shing, the Communications and Marketing Specialist at Plowshares Fund. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has exposed just how close nuclear escalation and nuclear war can be. To meet the urgency of this moment, Plowshares Fund has launched a donation match challenge to make the largest grants possible to those who are working every day to reduce and eliminate nuclear weapons. Right now, all first-time gifts will be matched dollar for dollar, and all new monthly gifts will be matched at their 12-month value. Or, increase your giving and the full amount above your last gift will be matched. Go to plowshares.org donate today. And thanks for listening. The Iran nuclear deal is on the verge of collapse. Talks in Vienna have been stalled for months. Neither Washington nor Tehran seem to have the political will to meet the moment. Meanwhile, time is running out. The head of the UN's atomic watchdog, Rafael Grossi, has said that Iran's recent move to limit transparency means that his agency 
might soon be unable to confirm the peaceful nature of Iran's nuclear program. He called it a fatal blow to the deal. So, can this deal be saved? And if so, how? Here to help us understand this developing situation, we're joined by Negar Mordazavi. She's an Iranian-American journalist and political analyst and host of the Iran podcast. Negar, so great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. So, Negar, let's start with the big picture. How bad is the situation with the Iran nuclear deal? And how did we get here? Well, as you said, it looks pretty bad. I mean, I, I've always tried to maintain optimism and not become too pessimistic. But as far as where we are and where we came in the past sort of year and a half, meaning since the beginning of the Biden administration, when diplomacy was sort of restarted, and then obviously we always have to go as far back as the Trump era, and specifically the May 2018, when President Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal, pulled the U.S. out of the nuclear deal. I think we're not in a good place, as you also quoted the IAEA director, Iran is sort of developing and expanding its program and also reducing its commitment to the nuclear deal. I think it's sort of a natural reaction or meaning predictable reaction to them seeing the U.S. reduce its commitment or sort of be in, in non-compliance to the deal. And unfortunately, the attempts at diplomacy have not been successful in the past year and a half. And moving forward also, I think the closer we get to the U.S. midterm elections, the more difficult this path is going to be because a lot of foreign policy and international issues become domestic political fights in the U.S., in the election. The Democrats have the White House and Congress right now, but that's not necessarily going to continue after the midterm election. So this is one focus of the administration. And I think there will be less and less priority put on foreign issues, including the Iran deal. So that's why I also don't have a lot of hope moving forward. And then that's also why me and some others were emphasizing that the beginning of the administration, or specifically the first six months that overlapped with the previous advent in Iran was a golden window of opportunity, which unfortunately was lost. So as we mentioned recently, Iran has taken the move in response to criticism from the International Atomic Energy Agency to turn off cameras that were part of the Iran deal to verify Iran's non-nuclear status. And that was the move that uh, Rafael Grossi was responding to. What do you think Iran is trying to achieve by turning off these surveillance cameras? What is their game plan here? I want to quote the current head of CIA and William Burns, who recently again reaffirmed that U.S. intelligence has concluded that Iran's nuclear program continues to be civilian and they haven't, you know, moved towards making it a weapons program. And I still think my reading from observing Tehran and also talking to sources in the country is that that calculation still remains that the nuclear program wants to remain civilian. I don't think they're making the leap towards a weapons program. But having said that, I also think they're trying to expand the program and sort of push the limits 
meaning the limits of a civilian program to escalate the situation in a way. And I think even the escalation is calculated because we've seen them take step by step, very calculated steps, but step by step since President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the deal the first year or so, the Iranians waited and signaled that they were hoping that the Europeans would sort of make up for the U.S. absence in the deal, meaning in the form of economic returns, because that's the essence of it. It's Iran agreeing to put limits and monitoring of its nuclear program in exchange for economic returns. And the U.S. sanctions, the economic sanctions, the crippling economic sanctions have really crippled Iran's economy. So the Europeans had very strong political and public opposition to the Trump administration. But in reality, the Iranians didn't see that economic return. And then they, after a year or so, they started taking steps to reduce their compliance. But there were also reversible steps. And they were constantly signaling that we're not burning a bridge of going back but we're also willing to move forward. When President Biden won in November, there was this expectation in Tehran, and frankly, by many of us also here in Washington, that the Biden admin would bring the U.S. back into the JCPOA much earlier than where we are right now. That was the expectation. So in a way, Tehran also sort of waited out President Trump for the Biden team to come in. But then Again, as that window of opportunity was missed, and then there was an election in Iran last year in June, there's a change of administration, the hardliners or conservatives are in power now, and the dynamics have changed and shifted. So I think this is a continuation of them taking steps to escalate the situation within a limit, within a framework. Technically, Iran hasn't left the JCPOA, the deal, and I think the calculation in Tehran still is that this deal is in their benefit, but the deal is also in coma, as we call, we like to call it, on life support. So if this deal is not resurrected, I think the status quo of U.S. sanctions is just something that Iran is not happy about. It doesn't work for them. And they're going to try to escalate more and more, unfortunately, to, you know, change the calculation in Washington. So you see this latest Iranian escalation as a way to, in a sense, get Biden's attention to act sooner rather than let this just kind of stall out. Exactly, because as I see it, I think this administration, even though they wanted a return to the JCPOA, but considering what happened under Trump and where we are now, they see the political cost of a return to the JCPOA too high for them, the domestic cost. And they've sort of learned to live or be comfortable with the status quo. And the Iranians also observe Washington very closely. They understand U.S. domestic politics. So they want to change this calculation of making the status quo or changing the status quo in a way that it becomes uncomfortable enough for the administration that they would try to take a step, sort of balance that political cost. And we should just be clear, when we talk about that political cost, Right now, that swirls around Iran's demand that the Biden administration no longer designate the Revolutionary Guard as a foreign terrorist organization. And this is the step that the Biden administration has, we think, determined is not worth the political costs. And therefore, the Biden administration is in no rush to meet Iran's demand on this. And at the same time, the administration is playing down the UN's concerns about the lack of transparency that is increasing 
in Iran's program. So the, the question is, if the administration does not want to pay that political cost on the Revolutionary Guard, and it seems to be hoping that Iran will not escalate the situation before the elections, is that likely, right? It certainly seems that, as we've just been discussing, Iran's game plan is to keep escalating, to force the issue, to force the Biden administration to do something proactive. So how do you see uh, the next few months playing out, and how might things get worse before November? Well, there are escalations that are calculated, and then the nature of the region and also this volatile sort of relationship or tension or the lack of relationship is that there are escalations that you don't anticipate and things getting out of hand or conflicts that you stumble into or things like the Russia attack on Ukraine that are just unrelated but happen and divert your attention or influence your other uh, decisions and calculations. You know, a year ago, we didn't know we would be here dealing with this massive global issue, meaning Russia's invasion of Ukraine that would impact every other foreign policy decision. So it seems like Tehran's calculation is that, as I said, they want this deal, but the IRGC FDO designation, as you said, the removal of the IRGC is also, which is the sticking point, is something that they want as part of the deal. There have been some public signaling, for example, the current foreign minister, the new foreign minister once uh, publicly said that the IRGC commanders have been telling him that if you can make a deal without us, meaning without the removal of the FTO, go ahead and do it for the benefit of the public, meaning the Iranian people or the economy, and don't hold back um, because of the IRGC. There have been statements like that, but then there's also, we have to understand their internal um, political fights even within Iran. The foreign minister, yes, it seems like the conservatives or hardliners now have uh, control over all segments of power, meaning the administration, the parliament, which they won the year before. But even within hardliners, and especially when they come into power, the divisions start to become uh, more highlighted. So it seems like the IRGC issue is still a sticking point for Iran, and meaning the Iranians see that as part of the JCPOA, or they've made it a nuclear-related issue, meaning they're saying if there's sanctions relief without that removal, because the IRGC is essentially involved in every major sector of Iranian economy, the economic return wouldn't make sense for them. For the U.S. side, it seems like the Biden administration is looking at the IRGC removal as a non-nuclear issue and then wanting non-nuclear uh, concessions from Iran in return for that IRGC removal. So anyways, I don't think the Iranians are going to take this offer, the JCPOA minus the IRGC. And so for them, it's just uh, escalating more, both in the form of the nuclear program meaning, you know, taking more steps to reduce their compliance. At some point, there have even been talks within some circles in Iran of just leaving this deal. If the deal is on life support, if it's been in coma for four years, then what's the point of waiting for it to be resurrected? But I haven't seen any strong indications that that's something that's imminent, but just you know, in other ways, sort of reducing uh, the monitoring powers of the UN watchdog and also sort of the global insight into the program and escalating still within those limits of a civilian program, but bringing Iran closer to what you nuclear experts call 
the threshold of you know being very close to making that leap if they decide to or at least making everyone nervous that they can make that leap and then also within the region we know this is not just the u.s and iran within a laboratory situation this is the u.s all of its allies and the whole mess in the region iran its proxies and the other side of the mess in the region so there are also events in non-nuclear form in conflicts, uh, small or large, that can happen in the region and pull either side um, into that bigger tension situation. Yes, which we'll get to in a moment. But I just want to stick for now with this question of how Iran might escalate in the next few months. And as you said, quite rightly, the steps that Iran has taken so far are reversible, right? They can turn the cameras back on. They can ship enriched uranium out of the country. They can disassemble uranium enrichment machines. All of these things are reversible if the deal comes back into play, even if they took the step of enriching uranium up to 90%, which is weapons grade, which they haven't done yet. Even that would be reversible, although that would be quite destabilizing, I would think. But what, in your sense, is there any point at which Iran would feel the need to take a step that is not reversible. For example, taking material out of safeguards or or something of that nature. Do you see that in the cards or do you think at this point they will keep with steps to escalate but leave the option to turn to the deal open? Let me go back to the coma situation. I think that's easier to explain in that way. I think neither side, Tehran or Washington, wants to sort of pull the plug out of this deal, which is in coma. Nobody wants to be responsible for completely killing it. But even though I think the Iranian side has more incentive to resurrect it, they have more expectations from the U.S. side. So it seems like the political cost for the Biden administration to do what it's required to resurrect the deal right now is higher domestically and probably will get higher as we get closer to midterm elections here. For Iran, as much as they want it, they want to do it in the form of making the other side seem more eager or get more eager in the form of escalation instead of them taking more steps or making more concessions um, to resurrect it. So going back to your question, no, I don't think they're right now that the calculation doesn't seem to be completely pulling the plug because at some point certain figures in Iran were also even floating the idea of just completely leaving the NPT, which is even beyond uh, leaving the JCPOA. But we see that even to this point, they haven't left the JCPOA officially. They're still at that table. They continue to signal that they're even open to speaking directly to the U.S. as long as the U.S. enters the deal and sits at that table, even out of compliance, but re-enter the deal, which the U.S. hasn't. And so I think they're just trying to figure out maybe creative way, if you call it, creative ways of staying within that limit keeping the seat at the table, but also giving the sense of escalation. Would that calculation change? Yes, there's a possibility. And one scenario I'm thinking is if the U.S. side signals or sort of decides to pull the plug or, you know, the administration just come out and say, you know what, this is done. We're not doing this. We're not doing negotiations or diplomacy. It's a dead end and then take a completely different step, which is sort of what the Trump administration did. And I don't think the Biden administration is is 
moving towards something like that, either publicly, you know, signaling or in in action, pulling that plug. So I think um, we're, we're sort of going to continue, but it things may change if the Iranian escalation on their side reaches a point where the Biden team decides that, okay, the political cost of that situation is higher than just returning to the deal. Another aspect to this is that, of course, the Biden administration has announced that the president will be traveling to the Middle East, to Israel and Saudi Arabia in July, his first trip there. How do you see that trip and any possible outcomes of that trip affecting the calculus on the Iran deal, if at all? Well, yes, I think it does, at least from a public signaling point. First of all, from an American viewpoint, as people who observe foreign policy, I think uh, it's a little disappointing to see the administration sort of follow in the footsteps of the Trump administration with a different rhetoric, yes, sure, but sort of in action or as far as policies not too different from the Middle East policy of the previous administration when it comes to Iran, when it comes to Saudi Arabia. Candidate Biden had promised to make at least the Saudi ruler Ben Salman, de facto ruler, a pariah and the state after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And uh, it seems like that maybe the invasion of Ukraine has changed that calculation um, on Israel, the closest ally to the U.S. in the region, and just in general, the uh, whole rhetoric of centering human rights and, you know, siding with those who defended and opposing those who violated it. All of that, it seems like once they got into office, and then obviously with Iran, how to do with a rival or a, uh, a foe, it seems like when they got into office, the slogan versus uh, policy has become very different. And this trip also is uh, part of that big picture Middle East policy. As far as Iran, well, it's signaling to Iran, um, you know, that one, the JCPOA hasn't happened, uh, which is obviously something Iranians know. And two, that this alliance, the U.S. alliance with its allies and partners in the region continues is not going to be much different and it's also going to give new reassurances because we know and you and i uh, following the jcpoa talks from the obama era that some of the strongest jcpoa opponents were not in the u.s but also in the region u.s allies in the region who tried to push back and stop or create impediments to to negotiations and there was this expectation that U.S. relations with its allies in the Middle East, especially the uh, Arab countries in the Persian Gulf, is going to be different when the Democrats come into power, when the Biden administration comes into power. And now this trip is signaling and whatever is going to happen in this trip, you know, the assurances or the new uh, commitments or agreements is going to signal that shift in the relationship hasn't really happened. And, um, you know, it will give those opponents in the region more strength to sort of oppose or, or weaken diplomacy. It's just overall, I don't think it's going to be beneficial to the JCPOA or the diplomacy process. This whole situation feels to me like a game of nuclear chicken, if you will, with both sides hoping the other will blink. And if neither one does, you know, the deal may collapse. 
how would a collapse of the deal impact the security situation in the Middle East, in your view? Again, I think neither side wants this to collapse, meaning completely pull the plug. And I think if we get close to that situation, again, the calculations might change or new offers may be put on the table or who knows, maybe Europeans, U.S., other closest allies within the framework are going to come up with more creative or stronger proposals to sort of save the deal from completely unraveling. But if that does happen, it would be essentially a failure of diplomacy, not just a nuclear diplomacy, but any form of diplomacy, because we know that was the gateway. The nuclear deal was a gateway to more diplomacy and collaboration between Iran and the U.S. or the West in general. So I think it will push the two sides towards more conflict, more tension. As I said, it's a volatile region. Iran has a whole network of allies and proxies spread across. You know, Iran, yes, is an underdog when you compare it to the U.S. or, or some of the powerful allies, but it's capable of creating headaches for, for the U.S. And, and its allies in the region, even as an underdog. It is a regional power. That, that's something we have to accept. And I think having more tension and more conflict with this regional power is just going to be detrimental to the whole region, to civilians living in every country in the region are going to be impacted. Iran has a powerful presence in Iraq, is the closest ally to the Assad regime in Syria, has a strong presence in Lebanon, has, you know, very close allyship with the Houthis in Yemen. All of these different networks and strongholds, if you may, are sort of designed in a way, as the Iranians call it, the axis of resistance. And yeah, I think we can anticipate more conflict. And then there's also the shadow war between Iran and Israel, which is happening on the ground in Syria. It's happening in the form of sabotages, cyber operations, assassinations, mostly on the Iranian side of nuclear scientists, of missile experts, people within the Iranian armed system. And, um, you know, there's also conflicts across the border. For example, Iran's border with Azerbaijan, Israel is having some presence there. There's tensions, Iran's Arab neighbors. And obviously with Iraq, there's a strong presence. There's partnership, but there's also tension. There's a land border. Iran has trade with Iraq. Iran has partnerships and collaborations, but then there's also a U.S., a strong U.S. presence there and influence. All of these areas are, are potential battlegrounds or potential places for more conflict, more escalation. So I think when there's a lack of diplomacy, we're just going to see more and more of these. And then there's also instances that are completely unpredictable. For example, back when John Kerry had direct contact through cell phone with the former Iranian foreign minister Zarif, when the U.S. Navy boat stumbled into from international water into Iranian waters and they were arrested and detained and it could have turned into a whole chaotic situation, they resolved it with a phone call within a day, I think. And it was a misunderstanding that could have turned very, very ugly. But, you know, when there's a lack of relations, when there's lack of diplomacy, meaning that continuation of uh, of contact and relation, you're just going to see more conflict in areas that we can predict, and then also in instances that are just unpredictable and happen. 
Nick, our last question for you, because we're unfortunately out of time. Can this deal be saved? And if so, what do both sides have to do? I think it can. The fact that neither side wants to pull the plug, that's, that's a good thing. I think that's where it gives me some hope and optimism. So both sides want it. Obviously, the sticking point is the IRGC, how each side looks at it. It is a symbolic issue for the U.S., you know, as we talked about it, it's it has a political cost both here in Washington and also U.S. allies in the region are very opposed to it. On the Iranian side, it's an issue of prestige. They consider the IRGC part of the national army. It's also um, some economic um, factor attached to it. As I said, the IRGC has very strong economic involvement in Iran. So if they can't do any trade or uh, deals, although there are other uh, sanctions on IRGC entities that would remain, it's still, there is some economic um, aspect to it, but it's mostly a matter of prestige, again, symbolic. So I think maybe with the help of the Europeans, it's interesting that Russia, the Russian envoy played a very significant role at the beginning of the negotiations, but now Russia is embroiled in a whole other issue. So not so much maybe Russia, but uh, maybe China and also the Europeans, the E3, Germany, France, and the UK, and also the European Union. The European Union has played a very significant role since the beginning of facilitating these talks, of keeping them alive when the Trump administration really tried to kill the deal, and also of sort of bringing it to this point. If I guess they push for more creative ways of bringing the two sides together so it doesn't look like a big defeat for either. If they can meet somewhere halfway instead of an or either or situation, if Iran can make a little bit of concessions, the U.S. can make a little bit of concession, maybe put off some things for a near future, uh, but get to an initial agreement, I think... Yes, I have some hope, but both sides need to make concessions because there's no direct engagement that needs to happen with the help of intermediaries. And that means the big powers that are present at the table. So I have some hope. I know the Europeans are interested. The EU is interested. How much power they have, how much creativity they can inject into the process is remain to be seen. But also the closer we get to the midterm elections, the more difficult this is going to be. Negar, great conversation. Pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thank you for tuning in to the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review and a rating. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and clicking on support. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. The Iran Podcast is produced by Joshua Barlow in Washington, D.C. Our theme music is by 127 Band and our logo art is by Mina Jafari. Thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye.